like to take just a moment to congratulate and express my thankfulness to all the wonderful mothers here today and grandmothers and perhaps great-grandmothers. It's the Lord's Day, but it's also a day that was set aside a good number of years ago to pause and just think of the importance of being a mother and what a mother is really all about. I don't always follow the script of preaching on a certain subject on a certain day just because it's been set aside, but today I would like to take a look at a verse that's found in Proverbs 31.10, where Solomon, the great wise man, asked the question, he said, who can find a virtuous woman for a price as far above rubies? As I study the remaining verses of this chapter, I find that this virtuous woman is under consideration had a husband, she had children. She was a virtuous woman, she was a virtuous wife, she was a virtuous mother. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, we're told to add to our faith several things. The first thing we're to add to our faith is virtue. That word virtue means moral purity. Moral purity. It's not part of our human nature to do that. But those who are the Lord's children, who've been blessed to have that faith implanted in the new work, in the new birth, in the heart, are commanded to add to that faith. You don't add faith to your life. That's the free gift of God. I've already quoted this morning in our Bible verses, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Man in his human nature does not possess faith. Anybody who exercises faith and lives by faith does so because faith was planted in their heart by the grace of God when they were born of the Spirit. But that word means moral purity. Now, I was blessed to have a very virtuous mother. I know something about what a virtuous woman is all about. My mother was a very God-fearing woman. And Karen's mother was the same way. Her mother loved the Lord deeply and dearly. She was a very God-fearing, virtuous woman. And I've had the experience for 53 years of witnessing a very virtuous woman by my side. I've seen her I believe display many of the characteristics in Proverbs chapter 31 as a mother to our four children and grandmother to our 11 children. So I've been blessed uh, in many different ways in that regard. Her price is far above rubies. Now rubies are very valuable, but the price of a virtuous woman exceeds that. God uses gold and silver and rubies and precious stones oftentimes as a standard, in the eyes of men, things of great value, but there are things of God even far more valuable than that. And a virtuous woman is one of them. Who can find a virtuous woman? She's out there. She can be found. Now, not all women are virtuous women. You've got to know what a virtuous woman is all about. So read the balance of this chapter. It's all about the virtuous woman. A woman that was very diligent, very industrious. A woman who had great compassion. A woman who looked out for the needs of the needy and the poor. And her own husband and her children. When you finish reading this chapter, it says, For her children shall rise up and call her blessed. And her husband shall praise her in the gates. But I just want to pull one verse in the beginning before I go somewhere else this morning. Verse 14. 
says she's like the merchant's ships. She brings her food from afar. We notice in reference to the merchant ships that it's in the feminine gender. That's often the case uh, in everyday usage of the word mother. Oftentimes we use the word mother, it doesn't have reference to our biological mother. There are plenty of people who call the earth in which we live Mother Earth. <laughs> I don't call it Mother Earth. Uh, God created the heaven and the earth, you know. But uh, you might be in another country and you might refer back to the country in which you were born and grew, grew up and you call it the motherland or the mother country. You may be speaking a different language, and, but you may refer back to the language that you first learned when you grew up as the mother tongue. So that word mother is used in a lot of different ways. It depicts origin as that which brings forth. But here in Proverbs chapter 31, this virtuous woman indeed is a virtuous wife and a virtuous mother. It says she's like the merchant's ship. She brings her food from afar. This, this expression um, implies that this woman here, in looking after the needs and welfare of her household, didn't just run down to the 7-Eleven and buy the most expensive thing she could find to supply the household. She, she searched and she did some comparative shopping, so to speak, and she was looking for the best value to make things go as far as they could. She's like that merchant ship. She had ordered some things. <laughs> Solomon didn't know anything about Amazon, but uh, we're living in the Amazon day, right? <laughs> People order all these things uh, from a distance off the computer. But she's like that merchant ship, something about the merchant ship that she's like. Well, the merchant ship had to have a captain, had to have a pilot. And as she would instruct her household, I believe that she would emphasize the very fact how that she, we should put God first in our life. And that God himself is not our co-pilot, but God is my pilot. I don't have a co-pilot, I have a pilot in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the captain of the ship. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where it says, For we see in Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with honor and glory, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, that is, every man that he represented on Calvary, every man that the Father gave to him before time ever began. It says, For it became him. You know, he tasted death for every man for... It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. As the captain of our salvation, he will bring many sons to glory. The word many means the greater part of the whole. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven, contrary to the common belief in the denominational world, there's going to be a, a majority of people in glory. The word many is used oftentimes in this regard. Let's look at Romans 8, 29. Moment whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The brethren are many. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn of them. The word firstborn means unique, one of a kind. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is a son of God different than you're a son of God and I'm a son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He had neither beginning, he has no end. But we're sons of God by the new birth. You know, 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That's what you're called. You're called the sons of God. You're God's children. 
You're part of God's family. A family he foreknew and chose in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6 makes that very plain. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, which we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ. Notice the subject of adoption comes into play. By Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will, praise to the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We're made accepted in the beloved. We've been predestinated to the adoption of children according to Christ's will. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He's the captain of our salvation. It will one day bring many sons into glory. Jesus said in John 14, 1 and 2, 3. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If you're not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. If we're not so, I'd have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Where Jesus is, is many mansions. Now the word mansion there means a place of abode. It means a dwelling place. There are many places of abode, many dwelling places because God has many brethren and Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. This virtuous woman is like that merchant ship. Had to have a captain. And she's going to point out continuously and constantly to her family who the captain is. Merchant ship had to have guidance. And that day, didn't have GPS. <laughs> but they were guided by a compass in the North Star. Compass in the daytime, the North Star at night. This virtuous woman believes in divine guidance. She believes there's a book called the Bible. Basic instruction before leaving earth. <laughs> That's what it is. You won't need it in heaven, but you sure need it now, don't you? I hope you understand that. I believe she believed in 2 Timothy 3.16. When the apostles said, All scriptures given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This Bible's a thorough furnisher. Can't be improved on. When men try to add to it, take away from it, when they try to change the words, all they're doing is making a mockery out of what God has given to us in perfection. This Bible needs no improvement. It's perfect. It came from the hand of a perfect God. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we believe preserved according to Psalms 12, 6, and 7. For the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver trying to furnish earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We believe in the inspired and preserved word of God. Now, we live in a really dark world, and it's getting darker and darker every day, isn't it? It's unbelievable how dark things are getting all around us. But while that's the case, there's still some light, thank God. And David says in the 119th Psalm, verse 105, he says, Thy word is as a lamp to my feet, as a light to my path. How beneficial and valuable is light. When electricity goes off and it's at nighttime and it's total darkness in the house, oh man, how all of a sudden you appreciate light, right? How all of a sudden you appreciate it when a few minutes, hopefully a few minutes later, the lights come back on. First thing, so you better call the electric company, tell them the lights are out. <laughs> 
We hadn't always had electricity. People got along pretty good, but light has always been extremely important. Everything about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in the scripture as that of light. In the book of Luke chapter 1, verse 77 and 78, we find where John the Baptist is born in this world, but his father Zacharias, and speaking about him, speaks about him being a prophet, pointing to someone else's coming, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, and the God of mercy has blessed us in sending forth the day spring, the day spring that shall give light to those who sit in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death. When Christ came into the world, he came to a people that was sitting in darkness. But I read in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, life, and this life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the light of the world in which there is no darkness. John 8 and 12, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. He that walks out to me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. She's going to point out to her family, her, her children. And notice here, the father's not mentioned. Now, the Bible teaches clearly that the husband and the father is the leader of the home. But I believe that the mother, the virtuous mother, will spend more time with the children than the father does. She's going to point out to her children that this merchant ship has a captain. She's going to point out to her children that this merchant ship needs guidance. It's not always light on the ocean. A lot of times the travel is at the nighttime. And we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is that light that guides us and directs us along the journey of life. Thy word is as a lamp unto my feet, as a light unto my path. In the book of Malachi 4 and 2, the writer says, Those who fear his name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. When the sun comes up in the morning, what happens? We have light, right? The night may be long, the light may be dark. But in the morning time when the sun arises, darkness goes away and light prevails. That's what Jesus is in this dark world, again, in which we're living here. That's what it is. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, he says, For I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. In the book of Numbers 24 and 7, it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, For a star shall come out of Jacob. That's Christ. That's Christ there. What did the wise men say when they came in Matthew chapter 2? Reading the first couple of verses, and the wise men came from the east. They came to Jerusalem with a question, Where is he that's born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star and have come to worship him. His star, the star of Jacob, the bright and morning star, had arrived here in this world. The Jewish religion was in a period of great darkness. Man by nature is in great darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 and 6 says, But God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness... He says, the darkness comprehended it not has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light, is he not? And his word is light. You need light to make the right decisions. You need a light that Jesus Christ is. And I'm sure this virtuous woman is constantly showing her children the importance of light over darkness and to take heed to that light. You go to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Go to where, read where the Apostle Peter has reference to his experience on the mountain of transfiguration. But he says, if we have a more sure word of prophecy, he's having reference to the scriptures. The scriptures are sure they never change. You know, I might have an experience, and I may tell you today, and tomorrow I may tell you in a little different way than I told you today. <laughs> I may remember something I'd forgotten, then I may forget something I remembered. That's just the way it is, right? I mean, sometimes some people got a habit of embellishing things, right? Enhancing things. <laughs> you know, put a little drama to it. But the Word of God never changes. It's the same every single day. The Word I'm preaching to you this morning is the same Word that the apostles and the ministers like Timothy and Titus preached 2,000 years ago. It doesn't change. See, we have a more sure Word of prophecy. It's more sure than even our experiences are. And they're sure, but it's even more sure because they're God-given and they cannot change and they will not be changed. A more sure word of prophecy where we should give heed as into a light in a dark place. It's not important that we give heed to the light. We're in a dark place, but the light is shining. We're to give heed to a light in a dark place. So the day star rises in your hearts. That day star, that Lord Jesus Christ abides within. We're in a dark place, but here the light is shining. And we need that light to guide our footsteps along life's journey. To ignore this will cause us to walk in darkness. And darkness will put us into bondage. Darkness will take away our freedom and our liberty. And so light is extremely important. And you know, the darker the world gets, the brighter the light shines, Right? You can just strike a match right here this morning in this light, and you may hardly see it. But go into a closet and shut the door behind you. Not children. Go into the closet and shut the door behind you and strike a match where it's totally dark. And see how bright that light seems to be. That match all of a sudden is much brighter in darkness than it was in the light, right? So the darker things get, the brighter the light can shine. So when the Lord told his disciples, let your light so shine before me and they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You've got a light on the inside that you need to uh, let that light shine. Put it up, you know, on the candlestick, not under a bushel. The Lord taught that lesson. A light doesn't belong under a bushel. It belongs on a candlestick where everybody can see it. That merchant ship had to have guidance. And that merchant ship carried precious cargo. This is not a battleship. This is not a cruise ship. Now, this is a merchant ship. This merchant ship is carrying cargo, very valuable, very important, very precious cargo. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It, carry, it brings to our attention very precious truth, doesn't it? It brings to our, our attention important truth, profitable truth, beneficial truth, Truth that will make us free. The Lord told his disciples, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And this virtuous woman is like that merchant ship. The apostle Peter, when he's writing the book of 1 Peter, seemed like he couldn't get the word precious off his mind. And that's because he had Christ on his mind. And in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, for the trying of your faith is more precious than gold that perisheth. Notice again how he compares something that God has given you to something valuable in the sight of men. Gold will perish with time, but the trial of your faith is more precious than that gold that perisheth, you see. 
Then in verse 19, he says, So as much as you know, you're not redeeming corruptible things as silver and gold. Again, notice silver and gold. They're corruptible things. Uh, men do corruptible things to obtain silver and gold. You know that? They do. Uh, silver and gold and riches this world have a, a way of corrupting already a corrupt nature, making it even worse. So you see, you're not redeeming corruptible things as silver and gold, but what? By the precious blood of the Lamb of God. How precious is the blood of Christ. It was precious enough to pay the sin debt. It was precious enough to remit the sin debt. It was precious enough to redeem you. Precious enough to justify you, reconcile you, and make you suitable to go into glory one day to be received in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how precious the blood was. In chapter 2, in verse 4, he's spoken of as a living stone that was disallowed in men but chosen of God and precious. In the sight of God, Jesus was precious. He wasn't in the sight of men, but in the sight of God, Jesus was precious as his son. And a couple of verses later, he says, for I, as it's written and contained in the scriptures, I will lay in Zion a stone, elect stone, a chief cornerstone, precious. And is in the work of Christ, in his life here, he was precious in that work, was he not? And he says, unto you that believe, he is precious. Is he precious to you today? Was his life precious to you? Is his work precious to you? Was his bloodshed precious to you? When you consider it, when you understand outside the life and shed blood of Jesus Christ, you'd have no hope of being in glory one day, but because of that, you have the assurance that heaven is your hope. How precious is Jesus Christ to you today? And to you that believe, he is precious. All the cargo of that ship is important cargo, precious cargo. And it's going from point A to point B. It knows where the harbor is. <laughs> the, store, the ship at times faces difficulties and storms out there on the sea, right? And I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get through this life here without some storms along life's pathway. But when the storms come, and storms happen in teenagers' lives, storms happen in the lives of five and six-year-olds, don't ever overlook the importance of a trial in a child's life. But be sure to point that child to where there's a refuge from the storm. Psalms 46, God is our refuge, a very present help in the time of trouble. Mothers are pointing that out, or should this kind of mother here is pointing it out. When you study what the Lord says about this virtuous woman here, it sets a high standard, doesn't it? <laughs> but I'm telling you, God never set a standard you couldn't reach. It's a high standard indeed. And it should be the goal of every mother and grandmother here today to try to emulate this woman that's described for us in Proverbs chapter 31. God is our refuge, a very present help in the time of trouble. Your life needs to exemplify that. What did your children do? What do they learn when they see how you handle trials and tribulations? How? They're going to watch you. How do you handle it? Do you point to them the importance of prayer, taking your problems to God, taking your trials to God, spreading your hands toward heaven, putting them in his lap, so to speak, and then going off to bed and get a nice peaceful night's rest and sleep because you put it in the hands of the Savior. God is our refuge. He's a very present help in the time of trouble. He's never late. He's always there. He's a timely God. I'm telling you, he is. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, 
For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I'm telling you, brethren, we, we have some great needs in America today. We have great needs as individuals, great needs as families. We have great needs, and God can supply those needs in the time of great wickedness and evil in the darkness of this world here. And virtuous mothers are trying to get that message across to their children and grandchildren, trying to impress it upon their minds, trying to indoctrinate them, if you please. The world will try to indoctrinate your children. I'll tell you that now. They'll, they'll do all they can to sway them away from sound reasoning and sound understanding and thinking. But the word of God, my friends, will correct that. And then when that merchant ship gets to the harbor, what does it do? It unloads, doesn't it? That's the whole purpose. Everything that merchant ship is carrying is carrying to a designated place. It unloads there for the benefit of the person that it's carrying it to. When you read about this woman in Proverbs chapter 31, you're going to see a woman very unselfish. You're going to find a woman who's always looking after the needs of her household, her children, the servants, her husband. There's not one word in this description of this virtuous woman here that has reference her looking after herself. Not one. A very unselfish person. Boy, isn't that refreshing to see somebody like that in this day and age? Very unselfish, very sacrificial, giving her life. She rises early before the light even shines. In her mouth is the law of kindness. Her lips speak wisdom. This is the woman that Solomon's describing. You know what's kind of ironic about all this? Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand. How'd he make it? <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is he didn't. The Bible says that all these women pulled his heart away from God. A lot of these women were not even Jewish women. He married women from all kind of places. Solomon, the man of great wisdom, yet I do not believe he ever even had a virtuous woman like he describes here in Proverbs chapter 31. But God, by divine inspiration, enabled him to write about one like this. Maybe he thought about having one like this. Maybe he dreamed of having one like this. And thought how beneficial, how valuable it would be to have a virtuous woman by my side. How can you expect to have a virtuous woman when you've got a thousand of them around you? The first ten chapters of the book of 1 Kings speaks of Solomon in glowing terms of his achievements, his successes. Read chapter 11. It shows his downfall, how he went spiraling down, all because he violated God's word and God's law and God's commandments. But nevertheless, this man pinned down these words, words of great truth. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. With those thoughts in mind, I'd like to go over to the New Testament because the Lord Jesus Christ specialized in finding virtuous women. You might say, well, did they find him or did he find them? Oh, it looked like they may have found him, but I can assure you he found them. In the book of Luke, chapter 7, you're going to find in the previous chapter, a previous part of this chapter, the first part of this chapter, 
the Lord Jesus Christ is in a place called Capernaum. And there he will heal the nobleman's son. And great crowds begin to surround the Lord Jesus Christ and left Capernaum. And the next day they travel about 25 miles to a little town called Nain, N-A-I-N. And as they get to the day end, I believe in the late hours of the day, there was a widow woman in that city who had a son whose son died. She was already a widow. She'd lost her husband. Now she had one son. The Bible tells it clearly, her only son. Her only son. No doubt he was a big help to her. No doubt he was a protection for her. No doubt a provider for her. They didn't have all the social programs they got today in America to help out the widows. But I tell you what, the widow has always had, always had, the widow has had the protective care of God. In the Old Testament, she was one of several in a special category. There was a stranger, there was a Levite, there was the poor, and there was the widow. And even in the New Testament day, what does James tell us in James chapter 1? But appear none of the five religions before God is this, to visit the fathers and the widows in their afflictions and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Here is a widow woman. I don't know how long she'd been a widow. We're not told. She's got a son. She's got one son. The son dies. The son was younger than she was, so I don't know what caused him to die, but it sounds kind of like me. It might have been something unexpected. And she and a few mourners with her are coming out of the city of Nain, and they meet the Lord Jesus Christ with a great many following him. It was a time of great rejoicing if you were following Jesus then. They'd seen his miracles. They're following him. And now they're coming to the town of Nain. In the late hours of the day, we find where there's a band of people coming out of the city. Here's a place where two crowds met. It's a picture to me like the songwriter wrote when he says, mixtures of joy and sorrow. That's what life's about. It's a mixture. It's a mixture of joy, but it's a mixture of sorrow. Sometimes it seems like there's more sorrow than joy, sometimes more joy than sorrow, but over time it kind of balances out. Here two crowds meet. Here's a jubilant crowd, a rejoicing crowd. Here's a mourning crowd. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mourning crowd. And they meet. Two opposites. Here we find two sons meet. There's the son of God. There's the son of the woman. The son of God, as already mentioned, is the son of God eternally. He's not a son like we are to God. We're son of God because we're born into the family, we're adopted into the family. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. That's why when you read some of these modern versions, you have to be real careful. All right? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And there's wording in some of these new ones, like the ESV, where a very important word is taken out, like the word begotten. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. The Apostle John is the only one who used that word begotten. The word begotten means one of a kind. It means unique. And Jesus Christ is the only Son of God in the way he's the Son of God, nobody else. That word's totally removed from the ESV version, totally taken out of there. It's a very important doctrinal truth that you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. I am not the only begotten Son of God. Jesus Christ is. He's the one and only. He's unique. One of a kind. All the family of God are members of God's family the exact same way. 
There are not some one way and some another. They're all sons of God by divine unconditional election. They're all the sons of God by regeneration and by the spirit of adoption. And they'll all be in glory one day without the loss of one. God's not going to leave one member of his family behind. It's kind of like Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. When they came out of the land of Egypt, not one was left behind. There was close to two million people came out of the land of Egypt. Not one died down there. Not one perished on the journey. When you read Psalm 78, you'll find where the Bible says not even one feeble person was among them. I never tell you how many times I've read that over the years before it dawned on me what it said. Not one feeble person. How is that possible? How is that possible when nearly two million people and not be a feeble person among them? You had them of all ages, from little newborn babes right to the granddaddy and great-grandfather, right? And not one feeble person among them. How is that possible? By nature, it would not have been. But by God's great power, his omnipotent power and his grace, God enabled even the weakest to be strong. Even the one that had the most infirmities all of a sudden to be healthy. <laughs> Not one feeble person came across the Red Sea. They were all strengthened by the miraculous power of God. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten of the Father. That word's a very, very important word. John, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14. For the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. It's the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That word's in there for a reason. The apostle John used it exclusively. It's there for a reason to teach you the difference. If it's not there, you don't know the difference. Right? So this place called Nain, the mourners are coming out. Those are rejoicing are coming in and they meet there and then two sons meet. There's a son of God. There's a son of the widow woman. Here's a mother, no doubt, is greatly mourning the loss of her son. And I believe she no doubt is probably bowed down. When somebody is heartbroken, when sorrow has flooded their hearts, it's going to bring, it's going to bring them down, is it not? Well, I read over here in the book of Psalms, Three different places why people are bowed down. Sometimes we're bowed down because of sin. Sometimes we're bowed down because of sorrow. And sometimes we're bowed down because of sufferings. You read Psalms 42. It starts off like this. It's the heart, H-A-R-T. It's the heart panteth after the water brooks. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. Then about verse 4 or 5, it says, Why art thou cast down? That word cast down literally means bound down. Why art thou cast down? Oh, my soul. Here's a person bound down because of sorrow. Here's a woman bowed down, no doubt, because of sorrow. Kind of reminds me of another woman found in the 13th chapter of Luke. And Luke was a physician. And God used Luke as a physician to write about things that physicians would know about that other men would not have known about. And I don't know whether this woman was a wife or was a mother, but nevertheless she was a woman, and I'm just thinking about it right now because she was bound down. She had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. I'll get back to Luke chapter 7, Lord willing. But right now I'm in Luke 13, okay? She's bound down with a spirit of infirmity for how long? 18 years. 
The expression bowed down. It's the only time in the Bible this expression is used here. It means she is bowed down. She could no wise lift herself up. Her eyesight, no doubt, was always down, always on the ground, and she had for 18 years. That's a long period of time of your life, isn't it? That's a large slice of life that you're in this condition. But where was she at? She was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, when you take a look at this woman, when Jesus Christ saw her, Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and this woman is there. He could see her bowed down. Of course, this is not the first time he'd seen her like this. As far as I know, they'd never met. It's not the first time Jesus saw her. Might be the first time she saw Jesus. Not the first time Jesus saw her. She's bowed down. Jesus sees that. He sees her physical infirmity. He knows everything about her. He, he knows she's had it for 18 years. Here's a woman that's bowed down because of sufferings. Sufferings will bring you down. Sorrow will bring you down. And you'll find in this case here that the Lord's going to say that, she, uh, that Satan himself had bound her for 18 years. He certainly had a hand in Job's sufferings, didn't he? But he also notices something else. She's in the synagogue, an important place where the scriptures are read, where the scriptures were expounded and explained, where they met every Sabbath day. Now, where would you be if you had this kind of infirmity for 18 years? Where would you be? I hope you would be where I hope I would be. I hope I'd be in the house of God. Be in God's house on God's day, on that Sabbath day. That's what they did on the Sabbath day. They went to the synagogue. And here she is. She's so bowed down, she probably can't even hardly walk. This is a serious condition she's got. She's had it for 18 years. But every Sabbath day for 18 years, you know where she's at? She's in the house of God. When I read about this, I'm pure ashamed of myself to even think about an affliction or think about a pain I might have that might even tempt me from not being in the house of God. Every Sabbath, 18 years, this woman is there. In fact, she's in the synagogue every Sabbath 18 years. Tells me she was a praying woman. Tells me she was a virtuous woman, a godly woman. It tells me, no doubt, she prayed a lot of times, a long period of time, that God might deliver her from this physical affliction, but up to this point, he never had. I want you to think of deliverances this morning in two phases. I want you to think about a deliverance that God just might grant you by his mercy and his grace while you live here in your earthly journey. But I want you to think about an ultimate deliverance that every single child of grace will experience when the Lord comes back again. When he gathers his family home and takes them to heaven, there'll be no place there for wheelchairs. There'll be no place there for walkers. There'll be no place there for canes. There'll be no hospice beds there, my friends. There'll be no need for a hospice organization there, will it not? You'll experience the ultimate deliverance. So sooner or later, deliverance comes. Don't ever forget that. A dear friend of mine years ago down in Florida, I'm one of, one of the most godly men, generous men I've ever known in my life. A man that loved God in every way. You could see it. Such a benefit to the church in his day. And he got cancer. 
and his condition was deteriorating. You know how I prayed that the Lord would deliver him. I just tr- tried my best to pray. Lord, have mercy on us. We, we need this man. <laughs> it didn't happen. But he said, Brother Lawrence, I just want to tell you, he says, I'm a winner no matter which way it goes. He said, if the Lord delivers me and saves me from this cancer and cures me and heals me this cancer, I, I'll be a winner, that'll be great. And if he doesn't, I'll just see my Lord's face in glory. I'm a winner either way you look at it. I said, that's right, Brother Ellis, but we're going to be the losers. <laughs> this woman in this condition feels the need to be in God's house. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at her and he said on her, now notice his eyes see her. Then his voice speaks to her. He says, come here. Then he says to the woman, thy infirmity be loosed. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was straightened up. For the first time in 18 years, this woman is straight up. <laughs> For the first time in 18 years, this woman is standing just like this. And now she can see out instead of seeing down all the time. And the Bible says, immediately she glorified God. Just as immediate was her healing, was the immediate, my, uh, how immediate it was for her glorifying and praising God. Uh, I'm on a Lord willing. Been on my mind for a while. <laughs> Somewhere, some nearby, hopefully, the Lord put it on my mind and heart. I'm going to try to preach on the kind of response we should have after we've experienced an experience of grace. Here, this woman gives you a little bit of a preview. How long did she wait before she praised God? She didn't wait a second. As soon as her infirmity had been loose, she stood straight up and praised God. The word loose is used three times in this context. The people rejoiced. Can you imagine being in that setting? Let's say this is a setting this morning. Here the woman comes in. And let me just ask you this. What if that particular morning that woman decided not to come? What if she decided not to come that day? Oh, <laughs> but she didn't. She came. And the Lord saw her. And the Lord spoke to her. And the Lord healed her. And the Lord loosed her. And then there's this old proud ruler of the synagogue in there. And with indignation, he said, uh, Why, man has six days to work, and the seventh day is a Sabbath. He should not work on it. He was not happy at all that she was loose from her infirmity. You know what the Lord said unto him? He says, Thou hypocrite. He says, You go down here and you'll loose your ass, you'll loose uh, the oxen, and you'll take him down and water him because he needs to drink, he needs to have some water. How much greater is this, uh, this uh, woman of of uh, Abraham, this, excuse me, uh, this, uh, yeah, this woman of Abraham, daughter of Abraham is what I want. How much more is this daughter of Abraham worthy? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you lose an ox, an animal, and an ass because he needs watering, and you lose him and take him to the water on the Sabbath day, and you're going to criticize me for loosing this woman's infirmity on the Sabbath day, You see, this man was more interested in his tradition than he was in the Lord of glory. 
a definition of tradition. Now, some traditions are good, don't misunderstand me, but a definition of tradition has been given like this. It's when the clock tells you what time it was yesterday. Not today, yesterday. This woman was bowed down because of sufferings. We go back to Luke chapter 7. Here's a woman all bowed down because of sorrow. The Lord sees her. Here's a place where two crowds met. Here's a place where two sons meet. Here's a place where one son is alive but destined to die and a, a, a scene where there's one man, son dead that's destined to live. Here's where two sufferers meet. This woman is suffering, isn't she? Because of the loss of her only son and she's met the one that Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 4. What's he say about the Lord Jesus Christ there? A man despised and rejected a man, a, a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The man of sorrows meets the woman of sorrows. And we find here where life meets death. Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. Here's life, here's death. Life and death meet. Who's going to win? <laughs> this man is in a, in, on the bar. It's, it's, it's actually an open stretcher. It wouldn't be like a coffin you're used to today. It'd be an open stretcher. And as they come by, Jesus does the unspeakable, the unthinkable. He touches the buyer. That makes him unclean. And he says to the young man, Arise! And the young man arose. Now I want you to see a point here. If everybody around there, his mother and all the mourners had told that young man to arise, what do you think he'd have done? He wouldn't have moved, right? But he heard, even when he was dead, hearing the voice of the Son of God, and hearing the voice of the Son of God, he lived. And he arose up. And he spake. The Bible doesn't tell us, tell us what he said. I sure would love to know, wouldn't you? <laughs> I sure would love to know. The only thing a dead person can do is hear the voice of the Son of God. And every person dead in trespassing sins, when God born to the Son of the, again, they're dead in trespassing sin, they can't hear the voice of the preacher, they can't hear the voice of a father, or a mother, or a husband, or a wife, or a child, but they can hear the voice of the Son of God. When they hear Jesus said in John 5, 25, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's our hope in the resurrection, isn't it? Verse 28, And marvel not at this, for they that are in the grave shall what? Shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They've done good to the resurrection of life and even to the resurrection of damnation. Life and death met. Life conquered death. This is the first time Jesus raised anybody from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised uh, uh, the daughter, uh, you know, uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. But in chronological order, the very first one is right here in Luke chapter 13. It's, uh, 7, excuse me, Luke chapter 7. I close this morning with this. The woman... Her dead son and the mourners were heading to a place that started with a C. 
The Lord Jesus Christ and his followers head to a place that started with letter C. The woman's head to a place that starts with letter C called cemetery. The Lord Jesus Christ and his followers are headed to a place that starts with C called city. I come up here to Hebrews chapter 11. It says, Abraham by faith looked for a city whose foundation, builder and maker is God. A little later on it says, these all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and they embraced them and confessed they were pilgrims and strangers here in this world. It says they were looking for a country, that is, they're looking for a better country, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By nature, I'm heading to the cemetery. By grace, I'm heading to the city. When I realize I'm heading to the city, the cemetery doesn't seem to bother me too much. <laughs> it doesn't. Not right now. They ask me tomorrow, I might change my mind. But right now, right now, when I think about the city, when I think about the city of God, when I think about that place called heaven, when I think about the place where there be no spirit of infirmity, when I think about the place where nobody be bowed down for sin and for sorrow and for sufferings, it helps me get along the journey of life, meet the challenges one more, one more day. How about you?